Welcome back to Real Talk, everyone. Zoe, Saida. Hey. Boy, do we have a great guest with us today to talk about something. We've been really looking forward to this because I think that there's some kind of medicine that we all need in this conversation. to tell the people where you are right now. I'm in my car on Route Brahma in New York City, back to Connecticut. Because, mm-hmm. you know, life happens. We deal with ambiguity here and we make it work. I wouldn't miss the conversation. I'm always happy to join you from wherever. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's an extraordinary commitment. And um, I'll also say that our, our guest today um, is going to help us with thinking about perhaps new ways to consider questions uh, around burnout, around supporting people who are dealing with a lot, about resilience, um, and maybe some new framings of things. And we are people who are running around all the time, supporting our families, supporting our friends, supporting students. Um, Saida's in the car, dealing with what she's dealing with today. Um, I got the time zone wrong because I don't get a good night's sleep at night because I've got a baby. Um, And our our guest was kind enough to jump on even a half an hour early. because of that. So for this conversation today, we have Dr. June Parks, who emailed us reaching out to the team as a listener and referenced uh, one of our favorite episodes with David Robinson Morris about reimagining what higher ed can look like. And it's always so fun for us to hear from a listener because sometimes we record conversations and, and most of the time we don't hear about what the podcast is doing out in the world. So, you know, of course, we love hearing about that. Um, So we have Dr. June Parks with us. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, a consultant, a lecturer, a youth empowerment expert. Um, She's got 20 years of experience um, in working in child psychology and trauma. She teaches people how to help young people without burning themselves out. And that is something that many of us don't have any kind of training in or preparation in. You know, we often get trained to take care of other people and maybe don't learn how to think about how to do that for ourselves. Um, She's got her PhD from Northwestern and, and uh, has worked at the University of Chicago, Loyola University of Chicago, a number of different professional organizations in and around higher education. And we are just delighted to have you here. Uh, Dr. June Parks, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, am someone who is always seeking information around inclusion and equality related to higher ed students and and professionals in that space. And I find your podcast to be such an important resource for real conversations that are also that are also a little fun too. So that's right. That's right. I am thrilled to have my include my voice in, in this uh in this platform. Oh, that's excellent. Will you tell us just a little bit? I mean, I gave kind of, you know, standard bio stuff, but would you tell us, you know, what are you about? You know, what is your how do you see your work now? And then What's your story? How did you get to where you are? Well, as you started off, I am a psychologist and an educator. I've been doing this work for over 20 years Um, in terms of the clinical part. I um, started off as a psychologist at a children's hospital where I was specializing in childhood trauma and abuse. And that was remarkable work. I met some incredible children there. Um, but I also began to create a private practice where I was working with youth from all ages, infant through college age students, eventually focusing more on our college age students. I also began to treat and work with some amazing higher ed professionals who were primarily in the student services area, but were pouring into students. So being able to support them in this very important work. I'm also right now currently a lecturer at the University of Chicago. But then the pandemic hit. And for many of us providers, we found ourselves slammed with requests for services. And the demand for services was way more than I could possibly offer. And and that felt awful. And it felt awful also not being able to 
be able to refer these students to platforms and, and resources. And so it was at that moment that I began to think about how could I expand my breadth, my expertise. Um, and in that moment, I really began to focus on interventions that were geared towards higher ed professionals, being able to support them in their well-being so that they can show up for their students in the best possible ways that they can and that our students are getting the best resources that they possibly can. And then I'll just say that in this currently how I am supporting campus well-being, I'm doing that in a couple of different ways. One is through providing qualitative assessments to campuses around not only those factors that are contributing to well-being, but also those challenges to well-being, student and professional well-being. And I am in these personalized assessments, identifying the root causes of some of these some of these challenges and creating recommending timelines about how to fix some of those. I'm also doing a lot of training for both um, higher ed student services professionals, but also for BIPOC women in higher ed. Um, and in these trainings, I'm really focused on, again, navigating how to enhance well-being and to be able to name and confront some of those challenges to well-being that these professionals face, be it inequality or systemic barriers. And then the last thing I'll share is that I also provide group coaching to higher ed professionals who identify as leaders. So I'm providing long-term group coaching to leaders. Wow, that is just so inspiring to hear as um, um, a psychology major. And oh, I always forget about that. Yeah, because you're also just an artist, <laughs> but the, in a in a in a yeah. psychology art therapy kind oh, of. Oh yeah, I'm a. Mm-hmm. My name is Zoe Pringle. I'm a psychology major with a concentration in mental health and a studio art minor here at Southern Connecticut State University, and I'm interested in becoming you know an art therapist. Um, right now I'm doing. Um, clinical work. I'm in an internship with adults with mental illnesses, and I'm a resident advisor on my college campus. So I've, I've been a student leader. I think I've always had that leadership quality to me, even back in middle and high school. But um, looking here at our outline, I can see that you know your your passion and your drive has really inspired this line of work for you and I can relate to that and so um, I wanted to talk more about you know the that mental health crisis that you mentioned with um, the uh, increases in depression after and even before COVID and just the the mental health issues um, that have created this sense of exhaustion that I see in my students and and myself at times and that you know, those existential crises and, you know, mm-hmm. the burnout that we we, th- we feel and it, it hinders us from, you know, progress and trying to, to push through. Um, so how do you feel about, you know, the way that people have been taught to um, kind of deal with um, things like this and, like, what are some things that you provide in those resources that can change people's perceptions of, mental illness and um, not feeling like you're good enough? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. And it's a huge question that I'd love for you all to to jump into. But if I'm understanding what you're saying is how do you, how do I think and how do I help people around issues around mental health? And exactly. Yeah. So Um, Right now, a lot of my work is really geared towards uh, higher education, not to say that these same principles don't relate to people who may be working in community mental health centers or et cetera. But my my lens right now is is very focused on how can I be of service to uh, students and the professionals who support these students in, um, in higher ed. And so the one principle that I I really rely on as a worldview that I hold is that there is this symbiotic relationship, I believe, between or interdependent relationship between student well-being and the well-being of the professionals who take care of them. One is doing okay, the other one's probably going to do okay too. And if one isn't doing okay, then the other one isn't. 
And so oftentimes we are providing a lot of interventions towards our students, which we should be, um, that there, there are lots of um, studies out there that are showing that our students are struggling. And some, some leaders are even using the term crises. And that's a real thing. But if we're only providing intervention at the student level, I don't think we're, we're really capturing all that we could do to kind of wrap our arms around this issue around campus well-being. Yes. And so I'm also thinking about and talking about how do we make sure that the people who show up every day, who pour into students, be it teachers or um, people in, in uh, academic advising or wherever, the mentors, the you know, how are we making sure that these individuals are okay too? Because as I said, as as one area is doing okay, higher ed professionals, that's going to help our students. Yeah. You know, as a, a faculty member, I, every, this is my sixth year and every year gets exponentially busier and more and more commitments. And there keep being, you know, the, the pressures budgetary and otherwise that is just, you know, do more with less. And it is, um, you know, like adding more things all the time. And then sometimes even I feel like any sort of approach is supposed to help us is just another added thing to do. So it's like, oh, we have all these deadlines and, and projects and, and, you have to meet with all 40 advisees in the busiest month mm-hmm. of the semester. And, <laughs> and truly, like, I can, I can see there are some students where I'm having to sort of triage in new ways. Like, uh, all right, so your letter is due December 1st. I actually can't meet with you until mid-November mm-hmm. because I don't want to make sure that I have time and space for you and I got to clear some things out of the way. And, you know, if I have time and space and I'm doing well, when I have those advising meetings, I can be way more present for students, more helpful, more joyful, more all the things. Um, and then when we're all just sort of running around in chaos, um, it just sort of is a downward spiral. So I'm very curious about, you know, given this worldview that student yeah. well-being and, and, you know, faculty leadership well-being, um, mm-hmm are interdependent, which I think is totally true. Um, how do we deal with this situation where we are always asked to do more, more, more? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. It's, it's heavy. Um, and I so relate to what you're saying. I appreciate you sharing your experience. Um, there, I have to say, I've had a great deal of conversations with higher ed leaders and um, conversation kind of starts with us talking about how rewarding this work is, working with students and having a calling or a passion for this work. But inevitably, the conversation takes a turn to what you're talking about, Casey, that we begin to talk about the the multiple demands, the workload responsibilities, the constraints that we experience in higher ed that we don't have a lot of power around, but yet are dictating how we work in this space. And then sometimes, not with everyone, the conversation can end with some of these leaders saying, you know what, I know that, that what we're doing isn't ideal. I know my, my team and my staff are struggling. However, um, it's, we're keeping our head above water and I don't want to rock the boat. And I w- really would rather stay with the status quo. And so it leads me to begin to think about mindsets um, that when challenges and demands are high, we can often, all of us, fall into the scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset is a psychological perspective that holds that um, we become preoccupied with the challenges at hand. And um, it really kind of dominates this myopic thinking, dominates what we're thinking about and what we're seeing. So we can't even make space for solutions. And I think we've all had examples of that. I could share mine if you're interested, but we, we, you know, I think we all have had these experiences, particularly in our professional space where we have landed into this scarcity mindset. Um, And what I like to encourage and talk about as I'm sharing my stories and the other people in higher ed are sharing their stories. How can we make a shift in our mindset? And I think there are multiple ways we can shift 
that I think there are lots of ways we can think about this. I share for me that what has been very helpful is adopting a possibility mindset. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to start off by saying, Zoe, since you're in psychology, you may know this. It's it's um, the field of psychology does not regu- recognize a possibility mindset as a mm-hmm. formal formal principle. I kind of see it as a combination of a growth mindset and a positive psychology perspective. Mm-hmm. But it's this ability to believe and hold that in the midst of any situation that we find ourselves in, but particularly our challenges, our constraints, our heavy workloads, that there is space for opportunity, for options, for possibilities, for growth. It moves us from I can't, which comes from that scarcity mindset, to moving towards uh, I'm curious. And in that I'm curious, then we begin to think about, okay, how can I begin to move, even if I don't control everything, how can I begin to move in a way that feels more healthy and supports my well-being? And that's what I love to do with with professionals, just making that shift around. I'm curious. There's so much power in that space. There's, um, I always wonder about, because it's not like to be in a bustling, busy environment, workplace, it's not like inherently a bad thing. And you can be in some that are thriving and then some mm-hmm. that feel that drag that I, you know, with a certainly existing in a scarcity mindset. Um, but I think it's interesting how, you know, you can, we can all shift our own mindsets, but we can also shift the culture of the place where we are. And that's what will make a difference because then somebody starts to slip out, but the culture can pull you back. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I t- again, I talked to a bunch of higher ed leaders and everyone I've talked to, it recognizes that campus well-being, student well-being, higher ed professional well-being is a challenge. And like I said, some people are even using the word crisis. It's, this is top of mind to leaders in higher ed. Um the the thing is that um, in order to put our arms around this animal, it's going to take a multi-pronged approach. Mm-hmm. And so part of it, the way I recommend and, and think about it is not only are what are those individual level interventions that we can apply towards well-being for ourselves, but also what are those organizational level solutions and strategies that can be implemented because there's research out there that shows us that if we are just providing interventions at the individual level, there the the impact that they can have for sustaining well-being and health is minimal. It, well, it's it's not as sustainable. I'm not gonna say right. it's minimal, but it's not as sustainable. And so I'm when I'm talking about this issue of campus well-being. I'm, I'm really wanting to help campuses and uh, universities think about, well, what are those individual interventions that we can think about, be it you know, personal time or self-care strategies and making space for that, but also how do we integrate well-being into our university policies, or mm-hmm. into our strategic plan? Uh, that allow us to think about how maybe could we collaborate with other institutions that are also focused outside of our campuses, but also focused on well-being. How can we identify funding resources for that are are specifically directed towards um, well-being of our students and of the professionals? And then professional development, I think, is always important. And so how do we think about allowing or providing professional development that, again, is very focused on how do we take care of of ourselves as the professionals Mm. that are supporting students? Yeah, yeah, I'm hearing these amazing questions and these, like, very thought-provoking kind of, I guess, like, buzzwords for me. And that just reminds me of, you know, like you mentioned that you have these experiences and I'm just so interested to see, you know, what are some specific like examples of these newer challenges that you, you know, you've been in the, in this um, profession for quite some time, some newer challenges that you're seeing on campuses and, uh, you know, around these um, spaces that you have specific um, kind of possible solutions to like what are some things that you might talk about in your workshops 
Yeah. Um, so challenges, lots of challenges, but uh, seeing that I sit in the space of psychology and mental health, a lot of the challenges that I am uh, attuned to and, and wanting to be involved in are around mental health. But let me start off by saying that I have a tremendous love and appreciation for uh, adolescence. So adolescence is a social construct here in the U.S. We <laughs> kind of think about it from 11 to maybe 25, 26. But our traditional college age students fall in this, this developmental period. Um, and one of the, there's so many things I love about it, but, uh, one of the things that goes on during this period is that there's tremendous, immense growth that occurs during this period. There's also a lot of challenges that are going on. Mm -hmm. And, um, the thing that I think initially catches the eye of higher ed professionals is when our students are struggling. And so there've been some, uh, with their mental health and, and their well-being. There have been some national studies that uh, have been conducted that look, have looked at this. One was by um, was a healthy healthy mind study where they yep. they, they uh, looked at over seventy six thousand students in between twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three, and they found that forty nine percent of these students indicated that they had symptoms of depression and anxiety. Fourteen percent had had some type of suicidal ideation, suicidal thinking. Um, and, uh, maybe almost a third had engaged in some type of self-harm. So again, this is an issue and we, as you know, leadership within higher ed is very attuned to this. But again, as we're thinking about intervention, sometimes I think it can be even easy to kind of easier, maybe easy is not the right word, but easier to think about how can we support our students? And that usually means exerting effort and uh, psychic energy mm-hmm. to our students that we're giving out as professionals because that's what we've been hired to do. That's, you know, I, I have been a, a referral source of university of Chicago student counseling center for over a decade. And, you know, that's what we do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the well is not endless. And so, How do we make sure that we are taking care of ourselves as we're giving and not believing a a narrative that we can just, it just keeps coming because it doesn't. Mm -hmm. One thing I really loved about your work when I looked it up is that as someone who is like aspiring to get a PhD, I am more on the research world. And Mm -hmm. I tend to forget sometimes that humanistic element that you hit so well When you talk about psychology not having this um, area of possibility, it's because so much of it we tend to think in science terms as opposed to social terms and thinking of the social aspect and how we feed the social side of someone's mental health, not just the neurological or biological side. So how did you know? When did you know that this is what you wanted to do and this was the route that you were going to use your voice to really make sure that this is something that isn't overlooked within these systems that are operating more like businesses than as places where you're supposed to learn, grow, and develop? You know, it's interesting. That's a great question. It's interesting because I, while I have had 20 years of both working as a clinical psychologist, working a lot with college students as a clinical psychologist, being a lecturer and doing that work for a decade, um, I'm not em- I'm not immersed into these systems. Um, so I'm not on faculty. I'm I, you know, I was a regular referral source, but I wasn't an employee of the counseling center. And I wonder if that provided me provided me with a perspective when you're not in the eye of the hurricane sometimes, you might be able to see things a little bit differently. And yet I'm close enough that I get and I'm always looking for conversations from people to help me understand better. Um, I'm always, when I'm talking about resilience or well-being, I'm always um, recognizing that this is a big beast. And so how do we um, help each other learn and understand? 
what are you defining as resilience? And the only mm. reason I'm asking that is because when I was mm-hmm. looking to help in research labs that were studying resilience, they were literally looking at which chemistry in the brain produces more resilient people. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to know how from a behavioral and just social real world application standpoint, what is your definition of resilience? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. I talk a lot about resilience. I'm always asking about resilience because it is, again, a lot. And there are a lot of frameworks. There are a lot of models out there to help us kind of think about it, which is fantastic. Uh, But in my experience, one size doesn't fit all. So there's not one model, one framework that I say, okay, here we go. And every student that I see in terms of helping navigate and promote student resilience falls into this model. So my journey was this. I, uh, you know, I am in the field of psychology. So initially I, I turned to psychology to help me think about, how might I think about resilience? And um, the American Psychological Association defines resilience as the ability to adapt well to tragedy, to trauma, to, to threat. Talk about bouncing back. And so, okay, I I held on to that until I took this first job where I was working with, really had the privilege of of, uh, treating and and knowing some amazing children who had experienced some unthinkable trauma, you know, stuff that didn't fit my head. I I couldn't put it any place. And it was in this work that my definition really got challenged. I think that also, you know, so APA has their definition. I think in general, sometimes the lay person may think about resilience and and associate words like strength or toughness or grit uh, when they may think about it. But here were children that I was working with who had experienced, again, awful trauma. And as a result of it, there were symptoms, mental health symptoms, suicidal action and ideation, Uh, uh, academic problems, behavioral problems, lots of stuff going on. But yet in the midst of this, I saw some incredibly resilient children that APA didn't, didn't really, you know, speak to. And so some of the things that I saw, and I always love to hear how other, what other people may see of people is um, incredible tenacity, incredible perseverance, an incredible resourcefulness when resources were incredibly limited. They didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of resources. And even this idea of bouncing back didn't make a whole lot of sense because in their short lifespan, it had really always been filled with hardships. And so what are we bouncing back to became the question. Um, and so when I talk about this, and I always love to hear and encourage people to think about what would it look like if we recognize that resilience is perhaps more than being strong or or bouncing back? And how might expanding our definition of resilience really be the key to to being of impact for for our students? And so the last thing I would just want to say with regards to this is that when I'm thinking about student resilience for for students in um, higher ed, I'm, I'm really talking to professionals around thinking about how do we um, recognize that sometimes resilience and challenge sit in the same space, that being resilient doesn't mean that you won't experience challenges. And how do we perhaps look at those students who may be in spaces of, of challenge but yet are still exhibiting resilience. And then how do we join those things, whether it's resourcefulness or, or perseverance, how do we join them in those spaces to help them navigate? And then the last thing I want to say is just when we're talking about resilience, we have to also talk about the fact that there are factors that, uh, that, that we need to look at the root challenges of resilience. Uh, and so w- whether that's inequality or systemic barriers or, how do we look at that, name that, um, so that so that so that we are able to assist students in being resilient and however you might define that? But also, how do we recognize that sometimes these challenges require or ask our students to be excessively resilient 
uh, in order to try to navigate our, our colleges and universities. That's interesting. What you said really resonated with me because I asked you to define resilience to you because in my head, when I think about historically how people have spoken to me about what resilience is, Mm -hmm. and when you hear phrases like, you need to be more resilient, it's more in the tone of, you need to just power through it, Mm -hmm. right? Not take the time to process it. You're just powering through, right? Just keep swimming, keep going. It'll be fine. (laughs) Get to the end. And everyone's thinking at the end, there's this grand epiphany that will occur as opposed to processing it in the moment will help build more resilience. I wonder if there's a tie between self-efficacy, which we've talked a lot about Mm -hmm. so far, and how that also works towards building good resilience, not just powering through suffering, but learning to process and cope with it so that you can use it um, not as something to distract you, but something that is that you can overcome. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, please know I don't have the definitive answer for resilience, but I love every time I talk about it, it is um, it, it is powerful. And I think we all need to be kind of thinking about it. But yeah, I really get the thing that most uh, is powerful for me is recognizing the resilience in the moment of challenge. And, and you know, Sometimes I'll talk about, uh, you know, just the fact that we can have challenges and struggles and pain. That doesn't mean that we're not being resilient in that moment and our students aren't being resilient. But sometimes when we see pain and and challenge, suicidal ideation and all those things, there's a a human tendency to back away from that. We, you know, we, we as humans, we we don't run towards that kind of stuff. But I just wonder how we can maybe change our relationship around some of that because there's a reason why those symptoms or experiences are existing for our students. And being curious again, but about what that is communicating, I think it can be really powerful for again joining students in the journey around resilience. You know, I had never thought about before how the way that we traditionally talk about resilience does assume like everything's good, something bad happens, Mm -hmm. and then you bounce back up to that place where you were before Mm -hmm. as though life ever works that way anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, first of all, like I had never thought about. This is one of those words that we just like throw around, I think. Freedom. What does that mean? You know, (laughs) like these very loaded words that are just, you know, we assume that we mean the same things. We don't necessarily interrogate. And then the other thing that I just, I, my, um, my mentor, Linda Berry, who's a cartoonist has done a lot about comics around, you know, um, her own childhood, which was difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. talking about this idea of resilience that everyone's like, Oh, you know, kids are resilient. You know, oh, that thing happened to the kids. You know, they'll be fine. Kids bounce back. Kids are okay. Mm-hmm. Or kids getting hurt and then people saying, you're fine. You're yeah. good. You're fine. You'll, yeah. be, you'll bounce back. And I think there's some ways where we minimize what, what kids are actually experiencing by just using the excuse that they're resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's so much to this. Um, and and again, I think maybe a part of that comes from the fact that we, as maybe a parent or as a higher ed professional, it's uncomfortable sure. to see that. And so to we see say, people in pain that we care about, yeah, care for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And so I am always thinking about let's name that because that's a human reaction. Sure. But we're you know we can you know one of the things that I I over the years that I've worked as a psychologist is sometimes one of the most powerful interventions I've done is not about giving them some type of tool or intervention, but it's around sitting with them in, I call it in their muck, Mm. just sitting and being present. And sometimes that is a 15 minute sitting, but there's something incredibly powerful about that, um, that, isn't comfortable initially, but is a, you know, it's one of, one of those interventions you won't read about maybe necessarily, but Mm -hmm. is, uh, is really powerful because sometimes things are beyond words, Mm -hmm. beyond actions. 
I can really relate to that. That that speaks a lot to me as a, a student leader, you know, first being a, a peer mentor where I'm in a class with freshmen in college specifically designed to, you know, kind of do what you just said, sit in their muck, um, try to help them get out of it, <laughs> pull themselves out rather than pull them out with other um, faculty members because that's not always the approach that, that works, you know. Sometimes people to build that resilience that we talk about, the social resilience and the community aspect of it is uh, sometimes can be more helpful. And being a resident advisor in the beginning, it was really difficult for me to see students struggling, you know, like how you said with suicide ideation and just feeling like you're not doing enough. Um, but then you realize, you know, we, we have programs. We do a lot of programming around things like this for a reason. We have social um, aspects of the job that are so, so important, not just the paperwork, you know, not just, oh, let me push you to this resource on campus, but actually sitting with them, talking to them, remembering things about them, you know, those are things that can help people really find that community and find that um, kind of courage within themselves to keep going and to do more. And I have so many experiences with um, students and residents and commuters even where they they might come to campus and say oh college isn't for me like you won't see me next year instead of just being like okay bye you know like kind of explore that and say well why don't you join this club or why why not um come have coffee mm -hmm. with me at another time you know making that making myself available for students and available for friendships and myself has really helped with that community um, aspect. And I feel like resilience doesn't, it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't come just as like, um, oh, you need to do this so that you can be this way, you know, like it should come as more of like a, let's all help to kind of take what you said, wrap all of our arms around this animal instead of just one person tackling the, the animal. And so I love that you are a part of this conversation um, as a student leader, because I think sometimes, again, we may miss the ways in which our students who are stepping up in leadership roles are doing a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, and, and even part of my trainings, I have trainings even for student leadership um, because you're, you are providing a huge service to your campus and the ways you show up. And so I, I love that um, you're here to give voice to that. And I just wanted to acknowledge that. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Listening to y'all talk, you know what I'm, I'm realizing? That my definition of resilience is being convoluted with perseverance. Mm. And mm -hmm. I'm understanding now or coming to that the two are not synonymous. Mm -mm. And more. in my mind... Oh. In my mind, I feel like perseverance is resilience. However, operationalizing that for me, perseverance feeds into resilience. In order mm -hmm. to persevere, you have to believe that you can attain the tools or have the tools you need mm -hmm. to be resilient. Yeah. They're hand in hand as opposed to synonymous in my head. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting that. I like that. I like that. So how are you thinking you know, moving forward with that, how, how does that kind of shift for you, how you're going to be thinking about resilience? I don't know. And the self-efficacy, right? Like if I can find the answers and I can put the pieces together, then I can solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And by solving problems continually, I can be more resilient. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that pushes me to yeah. this next question. And uh, how can yeah. we create a resilience environment, you know, for our mm -hmm. students, for our faculty members and our coworkers, everyone that we um, relate to on a daily basis to kind of empower each other and empower ourselves to obtain those solutions that Saida was mentioning. Can I jump in on this real yeah. quick? And then I want to, I'm curious about what like an example of what a resilience environment could look like. Yeah. And I want to ask, you know, Saida and Zoe, I would say that 
you know, it's not perfect, but I would say we kind of do that as a podcast team. And Mm -hmm. I would say what that looked like, because we, there's a million moving pieces with this podcast and a lot of things that change quickly. Everybody's busy. Uh, We all believe in it. So we believe it's very important what we're doing. Um, But some of the ways, like we were here last Friday and there was a, um, a last minute guest cancellation. And so the four of us just sat here and, you know, <laughs> talked about stuff we needed to talk about, you know, and instead of rushing off to go do something on our to-do list, we just hung out, hung out together, but talking about some like in deeper ways that we usually do. Um, and I know that that we think about like, oh, we have to be productive. We got to do stuff. But like that really, to me felt really spoke to my, to I think all of our humanity and then we always have a group chat going, you know, on the side about <laughs> whatever people are dealing with or just, you know, funny stuff or whatever it is. But we have that. Um, and that never feels extra to me. Mm-hmm. It never feels, um, I guess it never doesn't feel, um, I'm already forgetting the, the initial mindset that's going to burn you out. What were you oh, about? scarcity. Scarcity. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't feel like that yeah. at all. It doesn't feel like that. And I think... Yeah. I think it's cultivated through how we are together. I don't know if you would call that a resilience environment. I'm going to have to agree with that one. Well, I think the the, the answer is less what I think, but the fa- I love the fact that you all think that. And I, I thank you very much, Casey, for sharing that because it's not, again, you know, I wish life were so simple. You I add know. milk, stir, and <laughs> yeah. here it is. Take your and resilience so every- pill. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So everyone's resilient environment is going to look different. And I think it probably should look different because of who we are and who, you know, our systems, et cetera. And so when I talk about it, I really try to talk about it more generally and offering some of the things that I think about, and it may or may not fit for you and for your system, but something, but it may trigger some other thinking that, that is, uh, that is helpful. So I love the fact that you shared how you're seeing the space that you all have created as resilient. And I think the, the, the big piece of it is that it feels very intentional, you know, so not everything you're doing may be um, we're, this is number two on our list, but, but there, but there is something very intentional about trying to create a space that feels healthy. And Uh um, so, so yeah, so some of the things that I think about just uh, to Zoe's question around, um, resilient environments is really just taking this definition, this emerging definition that people may be having around what is resilience and how do we reframe it and and thinking about how do we be intentional in the spaces that the environments that we are working in. So um, when I'm talking to higher ed professionals, I might be talking about how do we, instead of advocating for strength, something that mm. you know we've, we've talked about, You know, how do we advocate maybe for empathy, which is Mm. understanding with sensitivity Mm. and maybe as opposed to seeing those symptoms and uh, academic challenges and behavioral problems as weakness. How do we lean into them as I was talking earlier to try to understand, be curious about that and understand um, how can we instead of uh, advocating for bouncing back or, or, or returning to a status quo? How can we think about growth? Um, and so th- some other things that I like to think about with, with leaders is around this issue of how can we use then our reimagined definition of resilience to enhance those initial encounters that we're having with students? How can they boost our outreach efforts? Uh, how can um, they help us stay connected with students? throughout the course of the academic year and identify those, some of those students that um, maybe could value from resources, but have fallen off the radar on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we under, use this to understand not only what our students are saying to us, but maybe what they're not saying? Yeah. Um, because there's sometimes another dialogue that's going on. So it's it's around, again, this notion of curiosity. And those are just some of the curiosities I hold. I want to re I want to restate Zoe's question, but in a different way. So sure. while we know that independently we need to cultivate um, resilient environments, what do you think 
the core pillars are for cultivating a resilient environment. We kind of created that space within ourselves as a group because we got to know each other. But for these open spaces like the university, what are some elements that they would need within that environment to really foster and cultivate what we could consider a resilient space? Yeah, um, great question. And I think it's multi-layered. Mm. Uh, at least for me, it is. I wish I could just say, you know, one, two, three, four. <laughs> so usually what I like to do is, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the things that I do is a qualitative assessment because there's a lot of things that are going on on our campuses that apply here, that don't apply here. We're looking at, a, you know, things that it might be going on at a community college, might look different than HBC, you know. So I think it really starts with that, um, really kind of assessing where we are and there are going to be things that we are doing well and there are going to be some things that are, are significant challenges and then um, being able to approach this some of these challenges the good and the bad with an openness to to recognize that uh, while well-being can be a buzzword everyone wants to say we're, we're moving towards student resilience and it, um, it really takes um, effort and it takes some introspection sometimes, um, both at a leadership level, at a team level, uh, to begin to think about what are my blind spots? What are those things that are making this uh, hard? And also recognizing that there are, you know, as an individual level, there's lots of things we can do, but then there are also these systemic things that we're battling too. So I feel like I kind of skated through your question a little bit, Zaida, but but I, I think, you know, it's just multi it's just for me very multi layered. So Saida is the systematic thinker of the team. I just I think it's so interesting to hearing your approach. Like I can absolutely see how you are you uh, like your experience as a clinical psychologist and because you're an exquisite listener. And I do think a lot of higher ed consultants come in with a program that it's like you move through this program. And I don't know that listening, really listening and, and really paying attention in terms of, you know, qualitative assessment to see what's there. Um, for I yeah. don't know that everyone always does that. I, I think you have a unique um, that your training and your your own um, perspective is really different because so many people come they really they have their things they their pillars their yeah um as opposed to saying that it's really often quite organic and it's going to look different of course it's going to look different depending on the the time the yeah. place the group the organization yeah thank you for that casey um yeah i think a lot of that came from my my early training working with in uh children who had experienced all kinds of stuff again i couldn't even i would have never thought about some of this stuff. And so this kind of one size fits all, or this is what we do. I think I, over time, really kind of threw out the window a little bit and really sat with, okay, where are we? And certainly knowing that there are uh, frameworks and models that uh, have been researched and, uh, evid you know, empirically supported um, that I turn to, but being able to understand why I'm doing it, I think, again, is really important. Why I'm choosing this one over that one, or why I'm doing this here. And that does come from really kind of understanding sitting with individuals, individual people, individual institutions, individuals within institutions, to try to really understand how we can move towards a common goal that I think everybody wants. Mm -hmm. And because because these topics are so multifaceted, like you had mentioned, I'm sure we could talk about this forever, like us two psych majors and communications professor, we could just continue on and on. Um, but um, I'm thinking of our audience members and, you know, other students and leaders and um, staff uh, with like minds that might want to connect with you um, outside of this podcast. So what's a great way for them to do that or to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, thank you. I um well, I can always be reached by email, which is june at junepharksphd.com. 
if you're interested in some of the work that I'm doing, uh, I invite you to ch- check out my my website, which is JunePartsPhD.com. And then the last thing, I spend a fair amount of time on LinkedIn, and so um, <laughs> I would love to, you know, have you reach out to me and, and share your impressions or your thoughts about these topics that we're talking about because I I eat that up. So please find me on LinkedIn as well. All right, Saeed has got one more for you. Yeah, okay. before we let you go, Dr. Yes. Parks, you've been fabulous. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you could give the, our mm-hmm. listeners one thing yeah. that they could do in their world, in their space, that could help propel the idea of resilience forward, what would it be? If you could pick one thing, one action or phrase or um, way of approaching things in their own life, what would it be? Wow, you only give me one. I know. She's <laughs> oh, like that. wow. It's, she's it's, tough. She's very she's tough. tough. <laughs> um, there are two that are sitting in my head. And you I, can I, do I, two. I may, I, may, I may cheat. I may cheat. Yeah. So one of the, <laughs> so one of the things that I um, really tell myself and tell other people is that this work is hard. Um, you know, particularly, you know, those of us who are in higher education, this work is hard, it's challenging. And how can we show our self kindness, as we are trying to navigate really tough terrain? Um, And kindness, and however, you might show that to yourself, is it beating yourself up? Is it ruminating about a mistake? Is it about, uh, you know, taking some PTO, whatever that kindness is, but that that's one of the things. And then the other thing that I, this is the part I'm going to squeeze in is around boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk a lot about boundaries and that could be a whole nother thing. Um, but I, what I want to say around it is that they're super important. And to, to hold this in mind, when we think about boundaries, that there are a lot of things we can do that we're capable of doing there may be a lot of things we aspire to do. There may be some things we have to do. Casey's got a new baby. Um, and then there's some things that we can choose to let go of. Mm-hmm. And to hold on to all of that as we are navigating challenges and, and using that to help us in terms of supporting our well-being. Well, I feel like there might need to be a Dr. June Parks part two. <laughs> <laughs> This was really such a delightful conversation. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, And I encourage folks, you know, reach out to Dr. Parks. We're no longer strangers, so. (laughs) No, absolutely. I think I'm following somebody. I think, I don't know, I followed somebody. But I'm going to look for you all on on, uh, LinkedIn. But again, thank you very much for allowing me to add my voice to some of these really powerful conversations that you're having. It really has been my pleasure. 